I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Academic scientists who make groundbreaking discoveries that can lead to new medicines, bridging the so-called valley of death, the gulf between the lab and having a validated candidate that's ready to begin human clinical trials, continues to be daunting. Foundry Innovations, which bills itself as a venture studio, sees a big opportunity in partnering with academic researchers to carry promising new therapies through to the clinic. Its team has deep experience in immunotherapy development and brings a wide range of skills and cutting-edge platform technologies to de-risk development and accelerate the time to the clinic. We spoke to Max Crummel, founder and managing member of Foundry Innovations, about the Venture Studio's business model, the resources it brings to bear, and how it works with academic researchers and universities. Max, thanks for joining us. Yeah, uh, thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about immunotherapies, the challenges academic scientists face in bridging the translational science divide, and how Foundry Innovations is seeking to address that problem. Let's start with what's often referred to as the valley of death, the gulf of moving promising discoveries from the lab to the clinic. What's the challenge academic researchers face in advancing their discoveries? The fundamental challenge can be probably distilled down into the word confidence. And and that is because we tend to want people to have confidence in their ideas, but science in the beginning is obviously one that's built on a small number of experiments. And this plays out a lot in, you know, who gets funded and who gets moved into venture capital is it's people that have overtly a lot of confidence in their ideas. But of course, what really matters is the data. And this is what I think fuels this valley of death between you can have confidence enough to publish your data in an academic sphere, but then for people to have confidence enough on the other side to invest it in for pharma, those are different types of confidences. And, um, you know, again, on the business side, I think we tend to reward people that have track records and have formed companies and are senior in their own ways is, is that kind of confidence versus the reality of the confidence of the, that you can have in the data itself and the idea and the, con and, and the concept that's being put forward. And so it means that a lot of things get left on the table on the academic side of this valley of death. I think one way to think of the valley of death is it's the thing that separates academia and how we do discovery, and then the investment side that brings that forward into really practical things like drugs that, that can move forward. And because it's so expensive to do that second phase of things, things have to be very, you have to be very confident about what you have in the academic side to translate it forward. And, um, you know, that's, again, that there's a particular type of person. Typically, it's not it's not really reflective of their ambition. And it's certain it's certainly an area that's a focus on the pharma side that drives things more than the discoveries and their meanings, at least initially, because, again, initially ideas are very are built on very small data sets. Um, but to to my mind, that's 
those are the biggest ideas. And historically, in my own career, too, I'd say those are the ideas that are world transforming. They're the first, uh, you know, they're the first in class drugs are the ones that are, are relatively un- mis- or not understood in the beginning. And you want to get them over that divide. But there's scarce resources to do that. So that's why things lie on the academic side for so long. Uh, without being translated by by by, by venture because it's kind of expensive, um, and so you're taking a risk, and you want to make sure that the risk on the other side is going to move forward. So that valley of death that people talk about is the idea that I you know ideas sit on, in basic science for kind of a long time before they catch fire, and are, are and are really able to be monetized or invested in and 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 de-risked in various ways. It's interesting to hear you put it in terms of confidence as opposed to capital, it's a difficult time to raise money, particularly for researchers who may not have a track record within industry. What is the landscape today for startups looking to raise money to do translational research? Well, you know, it is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, the capital markets are really pretty poor in general for fundraising. Um, In in contrast, of course, you know, just a year ago, um, venture capital was doing quite well in terms of fundraising. So some people are sitting on a lot of dry powder for investing. Um, it is frequently the case that when venture gets money, they, they have to deploy it fairly quickly. Um, so it's I think it's a kind of a mixed bag at the moment. The, the, the thing that is um, that brings uncertainty to all this is the question of what will be worthwhile, what will be worth it in two years? And, um, you know, what will the people that are strapped for money right now, will they emerge, the pharma companies that do deals, they're doing just like the tech sector, you know, they're cutting 20% of their of their uh, budgets, 20% of their staff already. When will that end, and when will they start to start to buy assets? Um, you know, the funny thing there is, of course, that if you look at the trends, the purchase of assets in the last year has not been dropping, but I think everybody expects it to. So this leads to kind of a, I think I see this as kind of a whirlpool of, of uncertainty at the moment in terms of what to invest in with the idea that at the end of it, in a venture capital setting, you want to have that thing be, you know, quite valuable. Uh, that's how that's how how venture capital makes its money is by going, is, is creating value that somebody wants to buy at the other end. And um, both, you know, there's always this question of uncertainty about what's going to be hot in terms of, um, you know, sort of pharma areas. Will it be CAR T cells still? Um, will there be, you know, new things that start to fill in? Um, but I think it's I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a morass at the moment in that respect because there is this this you know dry powder that's sitting out there, but the dry powder is also a bit um, skeptical and worried about about where to put it with the idea of course that at the end of the day you want to be able to turn them turn that money into something valuable. Foundry Innovations describes itself as a venture studio. What do you mean by that term? You know the fundamental idea is that we want to do or we're doing venture in the sense that we are putting money into things that you're, you're really in that window of, of, of opportunity where an idea is new and with a bit of seed capital, it can become something quite valuable. Um, but the studio concept is really important. Um, in typical biotech venture, you know, it was formulated on the model that's used in venture everywhere else, which is that you buy some intellectual property in a team, you invest in that. And, uh, you know, it, it will become something. The reality of discovery in the biotech space, you know, even going back to the original, you know, maybe Genentech, was that they didn't have all the IP they needed. And if you read the stories about Genentech, of course, there's this famous theft back of IP from, from uh, UCSF, uh, 
that was was pretty heavily documented. Um, but that that sense that you know research takes a while to develop, and the way we invest in biotech right now is to try to start companies first and foremost, which in a lot of ways is putting the you know the cart before the horse because there's still research to be done. There's still value in the university lab from which that came from, the postdocs, the equipment, the mouse models, the human samples, all these things that are going to be valuable to small companies. In, in current models, you, you thrust those over the wall of, of, of academia. You haggle back and forth with academia in one way or another, whether it's slightly easier or just conventionally hard. And you start a company based on that, and then a certain portion of those then fail, of course, because biology and and uh, drug development is not a 100% hit. Um, so in a studio, you conceive of just saying, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's put in place everything that you need, essentially inside the walls of the university, as a studio where you can go, and just as a, in a movie studio, you bring a script to the movie studio, and you bring you know maybe some ideas, et cetera, and they have all the things to help you get a movie out the back end. Well, then the studio, the movie studio, when they put out a hit, whether it's a hit or a flop, they don't sell the equipment. They don't skip fire all the employees. They just get another script and do it again. And if by de-risking that over and over, it's very efficient use of resources. So that concept of a, of a laboratory studio that is focused on something like in our case in immunotherapies means that you have all the equipment and you have all the people that are really good in doing what you want to do in venture space that are not only in your sort of venture you know, group, that, but they actually lie together for us with the university that we're involved with. So it's, a, it's an annex um, relationship. And the real opportunity there is to, um, to collaborate as opposed to saying we're going to just draw a line in the sand, what happened before, we're going to license, and whatever happens next happens on both sides of the wall separately, and maybe we'll have to back license it. We say, well, let's just collaborate for a while. Here's the studio, bring in the script in. Um, maybe you know you'll need to go back to the script writer, that is the lab that's made this. And out the back end, you will either succeed or you won't succeed. But the, all you've put in is the cost of capital. You haven't had to do negotiate. I mean, you, you have obviously done a master negotiation with the university to do this in the first place. But you simply don't have to pay all the inefficiencies of everything from from startup space to one of the biggest risks in small companies is building a team. To have a team that is as good as the team that it started with at the university side, plus all the new themes you need, that's a huge risk. It takes time identifying the people, having them work together well. So the, ultimately the idea of a venture studio is, is a recyclable laboratory that yes, has a venture arm to it, it has a venture goal to it, but it takes advantage of, a, of actual data generation and skill sets that are just permanently in place and are recycled from asset to asset. If you think about conventional venture capital firms and firms that incubate their own projects at one end and incubators and accelerators at the other, where do you see the foundry fitting in in that continuum and, and how unique a model is it? Well, you know, I think the foundry is, a, is an attempt. I've done this with a few things in, in, in my life is to, to try to reconceive the infrastructure of the universe and the infrastructure of the universe right now really treats venture on the outside and pharma on the outside versus um, academia on the inside. And it says that's the way it is, that there's a ivory tower. We have these metaphors. And, uh, and you th literally are throwing a company over the wall. 
the real change in, in the in conception here is to say, let's break down that historical barrier of distrust, be honest, between you know the licensing groups and the academics that feel that they're being ripped off or they're going to be ripped off by pharma, and the pharma groups that feel like, okay, what academics know is not very um, solid. You know, it's, it's published, but, you know, we have to extend that to people and people are diverse, whereas mouse models, et cetera, or not. Um, so so in, in incubators and in firms that incubate their own projects, you keep everything isolated. Both of those, you know, substantially say what happens in the academic realm and what happens either in your firm or in your incubator are not at the academia side anymore. What we've created is a, an, a sort of an intellectual property umbrella agreement with our a series of universities now that allow us to coexist almost within their walls in the sense and set up these collaborations so that um, you are not forming a company, you're not forming a venture external, you're essentially forming a venture internal to the university. So it's pretty unique. You know, there's been a lot of pushes towards variations on this of how do you get at early developments earlier. A lot of groups have tried to do, um, you know, there's the, the term since we started using, we've seen a couple other larger venture capital firms use the term studio. Um, it doesn't, you know, it ends up being a wolf in, in sheep's clothing. It looks like to us where it's just still trying to, you know, out license. There's not really an out licensing process in the in this co collaboration we do. It's, it is it is really within the walls and the postdoctoral fellow in the lab of the PI can walk across the street and be in a conference with the group from Foundry and they can, the Foundry can go to, lab meetings can go to, there's all under an NDA. So it's really trying to redefine the trust relationship between, um, you know, developing something as a drug on the, on the one side of the therapeutic value of death and really discovering the basic biology that exists within the university and saying, let's not make those divided by a wall Let's link them up directly and let's do it in a, in a format where the university can trust the organization that's doing that for them and, and, and earns their trust, which is, you know, it, it, you know there's a lot of historical mm, original sins of, of biotech venture investing that, that we're trying to overcome here. But it is trying to rewrite the rules of the universe a little bit by saying, look, let's not see these things as necessarily distinct entities. Let's try to figure out a way to have them coexist and collaborate. There's a lot of innovation going on right now around immunotherapies. You've assembled a team with deep background in that area. I'm wondering if you talk a little about the team you've put together and was the team assembled for the opportunity around immunotherapies or was it just a happy coincidence? Well, you know, like all things, it's a little bit of all, all those things. Um, from my own standpoint, you know, I had started a company that I've done this whole throwing over the wall business. It's a, it was a tough thing. I started a company that became, it's now called Pioneer. It's 50% acquired by Gilead a couple of years ago. It's, it's a very cool play into this area called myeloid tuning that we monikered. Um, and so it's, I've been through that experience and uh, have seen, you know, the various pitfalls of all the things I've just been talking about and more. Uh, there's other aspects of the inefficiencies of how, how uh, new company development works and the various incentives of venture firms and of, of uh, the players in the, in the field. So, so there's a little bit of just self-reflection that took place on my part in this and saying, well, and I have to add that we had a few other cool new assets. And then I thought, well, look, you could 
try to develop these further into drugs. Um, the ones that, that Pioneer are now in, in, in phase one clinical trials, we, we, in, in a few years, we brought three forward, which is a pretty good record. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. But, um, you know, started to think about, okay, if you want to start an, a new venture, a new company, you could do it the old way. And you kind of know how that works, and maybe you could do it better next time. But the infrastructure of the universe question, like how people are incentivized, creates a series of, of walls that you'll never get through. If, people, if the entire system is incentivized a certain way, then that's how people, will, you know, people will behave. And so um, when Pioneer got acquired, we had the typical situation that the one now one of my best friends who is the CSO there um, is Michelle Struli. And um, for his history, he's he cloned interferon alpha as a graduate student and went on to clone a series of genes and then and then started um, in biotech making drugs, including immunotherapies and made the first. Well, the second, I guess, PD-1 inhibitor that became Keytruda and ran that ran that program for many years. As the company got sold, it was originally Organon, then went to Sharing Plow, then went to Merck, um, where it is now as Keytruda. Um, so, so Michelle was at was at Pioneer, and I was the founder of Pioneer, and he was the CSO. And we looked at this, and together with one of the uh, the chief scientists, who's now our CSO at, at Foundry, and we said, look, there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to configure the universe that involves situations where you could continuously exchange uh, uh, innovation between a university and an early startup kind of phase project. And that would be if you actually were in the same intellectual property umbrella, if you had defined what's going on there and, uh, and made it clear. And then we started to talk to a friend of mine who's in, in uh, he runs a small uh, venture firm of his own that does socially responsible investing. And he started to introduce the idea of why don't you guys just form a venture studio? And we, like many people, had never heard of a venture studio and it's proven, you know, like both exciting and then also difficult to, to, to come in and have a different funding model. But we found a number of really great uh, people in Silicon Valley who have come on and have helped to support this because they see that this is a faster way. It's, you know, anything that's faster to go from A to B is going to be more, you're going to have a, a first mover's advantage. You're going to have, um, you know, this potential to, to own a field. Um, so we've had a lot of good um I'd say partnership on the business side for people that have run funds, that have run private equity firms that have come in and said, you should do this, you should do this, you should add this, you should remove that. So that we are a big collaboration by this point. It's, you know, it's, I can say that it started with myself, Michelle and Sriram from, from Pioneer. Um, but really at this point, I'd say this is a, uh, a big happy family in terms of we've got input from Jeff Brody, formerly of Redpoint, uh, Kanye Machiavelli from from uh, Kindred Ventures, you can name a, a number of people that have come in and have given us more than anything, a, a little bit of capital, obviously, but more than anything, great advice to say, okay, if you want to restructure things, you need to pay attention to this, this, and this, and yes, you can ignore that one because in your setting, that doesn't matter. So, um, you know, the leadership is very much, um, you know, the group of the three of us, but with a ton of input. We have a similar scientific advisory setup where we have a group of people just like you would in a scientific advisory board. And everybody that brings a project into Foundry becomes part of the carried interest, part of the partnership, part of the advisory. So it really is kind of seeing this as a great big collaboration. And, and though it has a leadership structure, just like any venture capital firm does, I mean, I think what we're doing, trying to do here is align people that see the, the, the varied interests and, and, and can play along um, and play into it and, and enjoy it. So that's 
that story in short. Now, what makes immunotherapies compelling as a focus for a venture studio? What's the opportunity? Well, you know, I'm an immunologist, so, and I'm not alone in this now, even as an immunologist or, or elsewhere, is that the immune system is involved in every single disease. The immune system is in, 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 it's infiltrated into all your disease, all your tissues at health as well as in disease. And so when you start to think about the idea about how you want to, well, how does the body in general reform itself? How does it terraform itself? Well, obviously an infection, that's the immune system. It comes in and it can remove pathogens. But it turns out like whoever's listening to this right now will, will not remember this moment if they don't have an immune system. And that's because one arm of your immune system, the one that one of some of the ones that we're just starting to understand is terraforming your brain right now. So there's a series of cells called microglia that are like, they're, they're a related, very related to an immune cell called macrophage, and they are immune cell. Um, and, and the goal of these cells is to clean up the brain, fair enough. But they also do a really cool thing, which is that when your neurons want to form connections to form a memory, certain synapses, the, the wiring, the junction between cells can be reinforced, and other ones have to be trimmed. And the trimming is done by the immune system, by those microglial cells. So maybe you thought the immune system was only about defense. It's very easy to think that in, in you know, post-COVID particularly, you think this is the system that is defending us. But in the example I just gave you, it's not about defense. It's not defending your brain. It's actually making your brain better. And that paradigm that the immune system is doing that in steady state plays out in a ton of ways that we've just been discovering in the last 10 or 15 years. So it's, it's involved in regulating fat metabolism, adiposity. It's involved in arteriosclerosis. It's involved in pretty much everything in the lung. <laughs> so you have this world where the immune system is doing all this work. And so it's a, it, it is the system that curates health and disease. So a therapy that treats the immune system, though it was weird when we first described this in 1995, um, I made the first checkpoint blockade drug. And we described an, you know, this using this as an immunotherapy where you're drugging the immune system. You're making the immune system do something that it didn't do before. And that was in the context of cancer where you could have drugged the cancer. Well, now you're drugging the immune system. You're taking the very system that regulates, curates health and disease, and you're making it do it better. Or in some cases, you want to do it worse or differently. That paradigm is where all the immunotherapies that we've done and the tenfold more that we're going to do are going to come from is the idea of using the very system that is meant to curate and, and cure you and, and keep you healthy and, and treat it, give it micro doses of this, that, and the other thing. Um, so the opportunity is huge. The opportunity is every disease. And one of the coolest things just to kind of bring that in about the immune system is that it does turn out that as a, as a basic science researcher, if you discover a pathway that turns the immune system on and you wanted to, for example, turn it off, there's still a really cool set of outlets for you to do that are that are really important for human health. And in the context of checkpoint blockade, I can tell you that when I first started to make antibodies against what are now called checkpoint molecules, we thought we might, might be treating autoimmunity at the end of the day. That is immune systems that are too active. Um, but in, in, because we made a drug that, that instead of turning things on, turned them off, um, and we could block that. And so now you would block a negative and you, the immune system got better and was really useful for cancer immunotherapy. So there's this cool opportunity in, in studying and drugging the immune system that on the one hand, you have this huge number of diseases that you can hit. Um, and secondarily, that you kind of can win <laughs> in about 10 different ways. So 
Um, that's, you know, really compelling as an investment because it means that if you can keep that, keep your mind open for a while, living under the umbrella of the university, you can figure out that winning strategy um, at very low cost. You don't have to form company and then form a new company. And you basically say, this is just basic research. And at the end of it, the asset will be, um, you know, really will be very valuable. Given that the opportunity is every disease, as you just said, how broadly are you thinking about modalities and indications? Well, the nice thing about the immune system is that it uses um, a lot of external cues that talk between cells already, um, everything from cytokines to antibodies and surface molecules on the surface of the cells to form its decisions. So the, the immune system is a big information system. And when it wants to communicate, it uses, again, a lot of things that go through the blood or go through the interstitial tissue from one cell to another. And that provides the huge opportunity to use the world's best, most tolerated, you know, drugs, which are antibodies. And uh, so modalities of, of protein therapeutics and antibodies that go into the bloodstream are really tractable in immunotherapies. Um, again, because you're, that's how the cells are already communicating. Having said that, and, you know, and that's definitely Michelle and Sriram and my historical interest have been everything from antibody therapies to, you know, cellular therapies, but, but small molecules are, are, there's, there's nothing wrong with small molecules. Um, they just have, you know, a longer developmental history of, of trying to get the right level of pharmacokinetics and, and, um, you know, sort of the behaviors that you need to have to get inside a cell, for example, and, and, and influence what you want. Of course, there's tons of interest there, you know, in everything from degrader technologies to, you know, continued small molecules. But as a, as a venture studio, like if you think of a studio, movie studio might um, primarily put out action adventure hits, and that's the kind of equipment they have. In our, in our venture biotech studio, we're largely focused on biologics because it's where we have the absolute most um, developmental history. But again, there's nothing really that foreign about these other modalities um, that we, we, we wouldn't go into. But for the moment, I think it's fair to say that there's so much opportunity in biologics still that it, it, it would be foolish not to, not to you know, follow that as your primary. You talk about immune archetypes. I'm wondering if you can explain that concept and how it might inform Foundry Innovation's approach. Yeah, it's a good question. So immune archetypes are a conception that we've been working on for a bit. And it comes down to the stories that I told you just now about the immune system in the brain. Immune system, for example, also is really functional in mammary development, um, pre-lactation. It, it has these roles that are not just about getting rid of a virus or a bacteria. And those roles are interesting because they support tissue. And, and so when we started to think about cancer, cancer is the self, you know, self, your own self cells that have developed a, a program that not only allows them to divide without control, which is what they're famous for, but also allows them to integrate into tissues such that the immune system, for example, doesn't see them as dangerous. And we started to think about the results that we had in 1995. So in 1995, we made the first checkpoint blockade drugs. They cured mice and cancer. Um, eight out of 10, let's say, mice would, would, would completely reject their tumor. The tumors would melt. And um, those two that, in which it didn't melt, there's something different about them, right? They're not responsive. When those drugs moved to the clinic, you saw that 
that percentage was higher. In melanoma, it's about 50% of people respond to the, the combination of either PD-1 or CTLA-4 checkpoint blockade, and 50% don't. In colorectal cancer, it's like 95% of people aren't responding, depending on their what's called MSI status. So what that brings up is this idea that there's something different about the immune system in some cancers versus the responsive cancers. And that brought up a big question, is are there really just two flavors of cancer, the responsive ones to checkpoint blockade and the non-responsive? Or if you classified the world of cancers, would you find that the immune system was falling into various different states, and we'll call them archetypes, probably built around something evolutionarily that the, that the tumor was able to dial in? So the tumor, if it can look like a brain that needs remodeling, then it's going to get all the help of the macrophages and the microglia, and it'll survive and it'll grow. That would be one archetype. If in another case, it starts to look like maybe a chronic viral infection that for whatever reason, the immune system decides, hey, I got to leave that thing alone. Well, then again, the tumor will be left alone. You start to add up those various scenarios and you have this conception of what we call archetypes. That is, they are states of the immune system, almost certainly evolutionally dialed in for various functions of the immune system that a tumor can adopt. And the key part about this from thinking about foundry and really anything in the next you know, 20 to 25 years of immunotherapy is that when you want to drug and convert you know, somebody from a sick patient to a well patient, you have to destroy the immune archetype that they have and put another one in place that destroys that tumor, for example. Well, what you need to destroy depends on what you have. If you only had one type of tumor, um, you know, you, have, you don't have only have one drug. Um, but we know that one drug isn't enough, so we know there's at least two. And as we did this huge study, so we, this, this, this conception led us to think about this a lot, and we did a big study called Immunoprofiler here at UCSF. We got, again, a big collaboration of awesome clinicians and a really big team of scientists to take apart. We tore apart hundreds and hundreds of tumor biopsies. And we looked what was in there and we said, well, how are they similar? How are these things? What, what is the paradigms that each of these tumors are using? Are they all the same? Are they different? It turns out they're really different. It turns out that they fall into pretty neatly into about 12 archetypal categories. And those archetypal states are really different from one another. When you look at those states, all kinds of other biology reveals itself to only be in one state or only in another state. So it really looks like this is a, this is um, computationally, this would be a little bit like if you looked in your Google and you're watching everybody, or, or maybe you're Spotify and you're watching everybody listen to music, at some point people fall into categories so that if somebody likes classical music, you're going to play Prokofiev the next time. Somebody has listened to, you know, Odessa, the next time you're going to play Bonobo or something like this. So you have this um, class discovery that you've done with all the data of what they've done in the past. Well, so too is the idea of archetypes. You can do class discovery on the contents of tumors, and you come up with, there seem to be 12 archetypal states. And just as you do class discovery, if you did it in, in Spotify space, you know it's working when people like the selections you give them, or you know it's working when other things about them do prove to be true. I think it, that you've liked classical music, so you're going to like this one next. That's the same idea of archetypes. And it's really important for drug discovery now because it helps guide Foundry. And really a lot of other you know, groups will be using this paradigm to say, what is your actual disease state that you're trying to treat? Are you trying to treat all cancers? Or more likely, are you trying to treat this particular state, get it to flip and, and, and cure the patient? So it's it's a it's a it's kind of a big concept for thinking about immune states as the things that you're drugging. And of course, for an immune studio, that's key. 
in terms of your gear in that studio, you've got novel R&D platforms and proprietary assays. Where do these come from and what are they capable of doing? Well, some of them come historically from, you know, our various experiences, but most of them are are built. I'd say there's a good portion of things like the archetypal um, states that come out of now our now published work. Um, there are some things that we publish as well that Foundry has that we have a very nice slice platform where you can take a human biopsy of a you know of a disease like a, a tumor and make thin um, thin slices of that, and each one becomes like a mini patient. So you can try out your drugs uh, specifically on you know that slice and say drug A works, drug B doesn't want, etc. And again, it's like a mini patient that you have immediate access to. So there's things like that that came out of the lab. A lot of them, a lot of the ideas, though, the, you know, there's proprietary assays like those. Um, but one of the, the really big ideas is that we can be part of this community, this meaning, I mean, the one that we formed between Foundry and our and our the host institutions that we're working with. And um, and leverage, you know, if there's a proprietary assay, too, in a, an investigator's lab, that is the pathway towards testing or understanding the mechanism of action of a new antibody or drug, uh, we can just that's part that can be that's part of the IP umbrella is to use that assay, you know, to its best fruition. And um, so, you know, we can tell you, you, you talk about Foundry as having a collection of the proprietary assays that we do have. But again, I think the, 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 the magic in some ways is the idea that you haven't divorced discovery from all the value elements, proprietary assays and platforms that also exist in the university where the initial idea came from. So, to me, that's a that's a huge magnifier. Is there a critical mass of projects that you want to have in the pipeline to make this model work? Is is there an upper limit to what you can do at once? Well, sure. Um, and actually, that's where we've been very thoughtful about this. Is that you know, if you run a research lab, there's an optimal number of people in your lab. It's somewhere between twelve and twenty. Uh, for a research lab at a university, it relates to the output, the interactions between people, between projects, between reagents that you have. And so Michelle and Triam and I, when we sort of conceived of, of um, Foundry, thinking of that and then also the obvious investment arm people that you have to have and some of the infrastructure, we're, you know, we're thinking that the right size for this kind of a studio is around 30 people. And, and that is because of this idea of, of functional cohesion in groups and teams and, and you see this number, you know, you see the number 12 come up a lot in terms of functional teams and being able to interrelate um, and have your team be very effective. There's definitely upper limits where teams fall apart, and R&D teams and pharma suffer from this fact that they are so big that the left hand has no idea of what the right hand is doing. And there's huge losses of efficiencies as a result, which is you know, ultimately why pharma ends up buying a lot of things from small, nimble companies is that, that those teams are very, very efficient in their, in their smallness. And yet, as you might imagine, you know, thinking about a venture studio, you don't want to be so small that you'll fail um, because in pharma, as in everything else, scientific, um, you know, failure is part of it. <laughs> you have, what you have to deal with is to try to mitigate that. You mitigate that risk um, sometimes by doing a lot of experiments cheaply. And um, again, that's where this model is really geared towards, you know, our long term understanding of that idea that your, your best efficiency is to set up a system where you can do lots of experiments in parallel and do them at low, at really just the cost of experiment, not all that conventional overhead. So, you know, in theory, we, we can, um, 
we can formulate this and probably will where we put this in other institutions. If I'm right, we will see other venture capital firms phenocopying this because it does make a lot of sense. Um, and it will do, you know, it'll, it'll be the first mover's advantage to whoever can get in and, and make a trust relationship with a, with a community. Um, so I, I'd say that in general, there's an adherence in lab world to this number 12, 20, that sort of 12 to 20 size. Um, but you can obviously make multiple pods of those. And immunotherapy can be one of them. Neuro, neurobiology, for example, can be another one. Um, so this kind of model of having studios might be somewhat of a cottage industry sort of model where you have a series of these very efficient operations and, and you may you may not see any benefit of making them that much bigger as opposed to just having another pod. But we'll see. As you advance promising therapies, there'll be a decision point on whether to sell or license an asset or form a company around it to develop and commercialize it. How will you recognize you have a company rather than a product? What will you look for to make that determination? Well, this is where we start to look a little like every venture capital firm at some level, which is to say that that decision is economic, is based on current interest, is based on market factors. Um, and it's also based on your the same thing as venture capital has to do right now. They're, you know, they're, that, that decision is made at every single round as to whether to continue, for example, your your pro rata rights and, you know, your, your continued investment in a company versus not selling a company or, or doing a licensing deal is ultimately kind of taking the path of, of take the money now and, uh, and it's, you know, make sure you've got good back end royalties and, and milestones um, because the market is so rich for this right now. There's such an enthusiasm for it. So there's nothing really special that we have to do there. Um, we've all been through this enough. And again, we have such a wide community of, of the collaborators in the foundry that these will not be difficult decisions to make any more difficult than it is for any venture firm at the moment. Um, you know, we do have one benefit again, though, which is because we run that studio lab, we can do that really quick critical experiment that helps you figure out, is this an absolute winner or not? Which is, again, harder even for a VC firm to force via board seats their companies to do. So we are the ones doing the experiments together with the academic labs. So we have a bit more potential to assess the broader impact of a, of a particular product or an asset or a drug. Um, but I will say that this is this is fundamentally the problem that people face at all rounds now, too, which is to say, you know, what's the data? What's the data tell you? And then what's the market tell you? And obviously, we have to balance that against the idea that you want to have long term value. And that's that's what everybody has to figure out. If you're going to take a partner in a merger, you're going to take a partner in a, in a licensing deal. Do you believe in them to convert this, to carry it forward, to, you know, to push towards those milestones um, that will ultimately make investing money? Because, you know, this is a value proposition. If investors make money, you've shown value for the idea and you've shown value for investing in science more. And as a scientist, I would love to see us show more more value so that people put more money into science and, and for all the good things that we can do. You've been building relationships with universities and announcing master agreements. It made me think a bit about what QB3 had done. Are, are these terms fixed or are they dependent on the individual projects? Well, a little bit of both. Um, you know, the fundamentals of these are that we give the universities more shares of companies than they would get if the, if the, if the, if the outside process happened if you threw it over the wall. Um, so there's incentive for the university to like what we're doing. 
and it's that part of that trust relationship. Um, you know, the way that our form of master agreement works in, in just in very generic terms is that we have the master agreement in place to, to get together with folks from the university, quick joint steering committee to approve a project. And then there's a form of licensing agreement that has pretty fixed um, um, economic numbers that, um, you know, kind of fill in the blanks as each individual project comes down the line. But by giving the university a, a, a sizable share of the company at the back end, and I saw sizable, I mean, kind of 2x what they normally would get. Um, the, you know, the, the benefit at that point is that already has them invested in no matter how big the market is to that size. Um, so there's a bit there's a bit of uh, a bit of various dependencies on individual projects. But ultimately, it's it's really designed to have the universities and investigators all um, equally profiting, if you want to just be straightforward. And you said almost like the French use it, which is benefit. Um, benefiting all the parties that have really brought stuff to the table and have made this happen. And, and so, you know, we're less concerned about like how cheap we, we can do this as to how, how much we can build a really good relationship where everyone feels like at the end of the day, they, they got a fair chance to try out their, their, you know, drug idea. They got a lot of help from the studio. Um, they maybe got some academic funding into their lab to do that work. And at the end of the day, they got a really fair proportion of the company that does form or the asset. Um, so we've really been looking at that as, and, and it turns out when you when you solve for all these economies that we solve for, that is not at all hard to do. I, I suspect you're focused on building that pipeline in, but at the same time, what are you doing to build relationships with pharmaceutical partners and venture investors to have a ready source to advance promising candidates? It's a good question. So you know, most venture firms can't invest in another venture firm. They have that in their bylaws. Their, their investors expect that when they pay, pay the carried interest that they're paying it only then to them. So we don't have any venture. We, we purposely also don't have any venture firms in here. We'd like to see them, you know, adapt the methods that we're using. But, but we do have a series of partners individuals from venture capital in here. And that gives, you know, sort of a little bit of an opportunity for uh, both to get advice, obviously, but also um, to start to circulate these things around. I would say that, you know, from a combination of my experience with Pioneer um, and various experiences that we've had with licensing deals, et cetera, we have a lot of contacts in venture capital. And as I said, a lot of our investors, not just those venture capital partners themselves who have invested, but also private equity um, leaders, et cetera, to bring us a huge um, Rolodex of people that we can talk to when we're ready. Um, on the pharma side, I've, you know, I personally, for example, have quite a lot of relationships on and, and with everything from VMS historically to um, Lilly right now, for example, um, so that it's not hard for any of the three of us, I think, to call up a call up the right people at pharma and say, hey, we've got a we've got an asset coming down the line. You, you guys want to take a look and um, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the start of it. I mean, yeah, I'll say that the other nice thing that connects us to pharma is that we have this huge community um, that is part of our community, the UCSF and all our various different institutions we're going to be working with that, um, you know, from the standpoint of getting knowledge out into the community about this, this maybe goes back to the opening question about confidence, is that one of the ways that people get confidence in their ideas is that they start to bounce around with other people and they hear them reflected back to them. At that point, you know it's a good idea. 
And, um, you know, by being part of this big community uh, where these ideas can bounce around freely and then can bounce out into the wilder world, I think we get access to the scuttlebutt, kind of the discussion of like, hey, there's this new, you know, X, Y, or Z. So relationships exist, but I think, again, the kind of the way that we've configured this uh, solves part of the, the, the issue you, you're ready for, you know, are you ready for, for advancing um, to discussions about about the next stage. Max Crummel, founder and managing member of Foundry Innovations. Max, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Danny, for having me and, and I really appreciate the chance to chat. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.